Well, good morning on this Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, the program is entitled Treasures of Faith. I'm your host, Bill Gent, and we are concluding our Lenten pilgrimage today with Father Ben Berenti, who's the pastor of Immaculate Conception Parish in Melbourne Beach. And Father Ben, we're so grateful that you have taken your time out to join us for this pilgrimage. It has been an awesome journey. Oh, thanks, Bill. It's uh, great to be here again today. And it, uh, uh, you know, as it is with all journeys, um, our whole faith, our whole life is is a journey. Um, we are ending our series today, but the journey continues and the implications of, of that. And as we know, the whole Paschal mystery uh, in our Catholic Christian faith is that's the center and the heart of who we are. And every day is a living out of mm. the Paschal mystery. We kind of shine the... Uh, put the microscope over this period of time, the Lenten season, and now that we're in Holy Week, uh, the magnifying glass to really magnify passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. But, you know, this is our life every every day. So in some ways, we're uh, coming to an end. Uh, we make our final stop uh, today on what has been, uh, to put it mildly, a disrupted pilgrimage <laughs> of yes. sorts. And anybody who's been on a pilgrimage, led a pilgrimage, uh, disruptions are par for the course. <laughs> I think we talked about that in the very first uh, time we were, you know, together. So we've had this um, disrupted pilgrimage and and uh, also I think, you know, by association too with normal pilgrimages, sometimes you reach in a pilgrimage where people are ready to get home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you know, you're ready to go home. I'm ready yeah. for this trip to be over. Well, hopefully our listeners are not exactly ready for this trip uh, to be over, but we're going to bring, I think, uh, today's program is going to lead us right to uh, the brink of Easter, mm. and I think that'll be a good place for us to sit, uh, certainly in these remaining days of uh, of Holy Week. You know, Father, we made that distinction between a, a pilgrim and a tourist as we began our series, and I was thinking about how at times as I was participating in a pilgrimage, how there were certain aspects of it that reminded me I wasn't a tourist. So if things weren't working out as we had planned, I was finding myself getting somewhat upset. And yet I thought of it, of it in terms of, no, wait a minute, I'm a pilgrim. I should be looking at whatever circumstances I am in and asking myself, what is the Lord saying to me in this interruption? And I guess we could kind of look at the current uh, experience that we are all having, Father, and we can all can kind of say to ourselves, what is the Lord saying to us here as we find ourselves in the midst of Holy Week? Right. I mean, this is, you know, this is, again, disruption magnified uh, at so many different levels of our life. You know, certainly for us as Catholics, the heart and soul of our faith life is under a major disruption, but, you know, so many other no, other aspects of life, and yet we did. We, you know, kind of maybe benignly said that uh, six weeks ago uh, when we began the pilgrimage um, that, you know, these kind of things happen, and, you know, you can learn from them. And I, you know, probably at the time we thought, well, that's, yeah, okay, so what? You know, yeah, that usually happens, but now we're in the grip of mm-hmm. of it. And, and again, I think it, you know, all of that, uh, they're not just little fervorinos anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they are the truth of our, our experience. And uh, I remember on a uh, pilgrimage that I had made uh, uh, to Rome, and uh, one of the, st- the stops on the pilgrimage actually was supposed to be the the day after we arrived, so a, a whole day to recuperate, and then the next evening we were supposed to go on our night tour of the Vatican and the Vatican museums. 
So, you know, for anybody who's traveled intercontinentally, you know, you arrive early the next morning. Uh, you can't check into the hotel because, of course, you arrive at 8 o'clock in the morning and they don't let you in until <laughs> 4 in the afternoon. And there they mean it. You're not getting in there till 4. So, you know, you're kind of half-baked, uh, asleep, awake. Your body is tired. Your brain is tired. So, you, okay, what can I do to kind of kill the time in between? So, finally, we get to check into the hotel and the first thing we find out in meeting the tour guide is, oh, guess what? There's been a change of schedule. We're going to the Vatican tonight. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> oh, my gosh, one of the highlights of the pilgrimage. And I'll be lucky if I can keep my eyes open to even view any Vatican art. Uh, so, you know, somehow, you, you know, you just muscled, muscled through it. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and again, kind of when you give yourself uh, to disruptions and literally push through them, you know, there are no guarantees that any of us are going to learn anything. You know, I, I've, I've been very realistic, I think, mm. in my own life and, and in sharing with others during this tragic time. Uh, but we hope that we can yeah. learn something. You know, there are no guarantees mm. just because mm. people meet hardship and sorrow and sadness uh, in, in any circumstance. You know, any passion narrative that's playing out in our life. You know, as people of faith, we're grasping for wanting to know something, mm-hmm. wanting to learn. I, you know, I want to grow in my relationship. But again, there's no guarantees. You know, and I think sometimes in our spirituality, we, we get that's a little becomes a little fuzzy mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that, oh, because you're suffering, you will learn something and you will draw closer mm-hmm. to God. I mean, no, absolutely mm-hmm. not. In mm-hmm. fact, many times in our pastoral ministry, we find just the opposite. Yeah. And you know, that's troubling to us. And so then we again have our little explanations for that. Oh, you must not be strong enough in faith or, well, you didn't pray enough or you didn't do this. But there's always choice. You know, faith is always about choice. And so we are in some various, very serious moments of choosing now. And of course, our prayer and our great desire for ourselves and for each one of us is we hope and we pray that we can choose to be in a deeper, mm. more significant relationship with the Lord. And, and there are people trying to help us do that. Friends are trying, family. You know, what we've been trying to do and what Divine Mercy Radio is trying to do, as well as other sorts of information is, uh, and, and resources to help bolster us in our faith, people that are just meeting together, uh, you know, on Zoom or Facebook Live or whatever it happens to be, we're trying to help each other be able to choose mm. for a greater depth of faith, but but it's not a it's not a guarantee. I think we have such short attention spans. This is one of the issues I think uh, that is genuinely confronting us now. And I think when we think in terms of faith, Father, we think in terms of moving from one thing to the next, going through the motions and not necessarily thinking about why we do these things, let alone what we are actually learning or growing in experience with God. And perhaps this is a real test for us. And I've often said faith that's not tested cannot be trusted. So I think we're all, if we're willing to go there, I think that we are being challenged in ways we perhaps never have been. Right. And that, I mean, I think that's, that's the whole crux of the matter is, again, we still have choice and, and it is our choosing as to how we're going to see things, how we're going to pursue our faith in a time of isolation and separation. Um, There are so many different ways, but as you say, and, and, and what I'm about to say is in no way taking anything away from the serious condition of people who suffer from a variety of attention deficit uh, syndromes. But yes, built into our culture, 
You don't have to be medically diagnosed with it. We're all suffering from attention deficit mm. syndrome. We just cannot, the pace of life, the way life is organized, the, the things that we are required uh, to do, even within the church and church ministry, mm-hmm. uh, and the things that, yeah. you know, that you, you just kind of have to do and you have to keep going under normal circumstances is it's hard to, to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all kind of suffer from that. So now we're kind of in a situation where you're almost forced to pay attention. Um, but I'm sure that even as these weeks have rolled out, I know for myself is it, there's still, we've often used this word, you've used it often in the spiritual life is it's a process. So mm-hmm. we've even had to follow this process in our distancing and isolation, you didn't all of a sudden start getting deep on day two or three in your life. You know, we kind of sort of kept trying to prop up life as we sort of knew it. (laughs) And then you get to the point where you hit the brick wall and no, we can't do that anymore. Uh, so let's just use all of the things that are our disposal now to distract ourselves from going deeper. And now we're at a point probably of I'm tired of the distractions. Mm-hmm. I know for myself, uh, one of the things I just had the television on briefly last night, and I will say I am tired of seeing every person under God's creation on a uh, laptop camera in their home. Yeah. You know, first of all, the quality of the picture is horrendous. Um, And it's, you know, and then they give you the multiple screens. So I'm watching 10 different, 12 different people, you know, in their rumpus room or, you know, whatever, in their baby's nursery or whatever it is. And it's just like, I I really, I really don't need that. Overload. Sort of overloaded. So, you know, again, in this process of of Holy Week, uh, let's remind ourselves, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. And even what what is meant to be unfolding in our prayer, our scriptures, uh, and where we will come to today on our final stop of the pilgrimage, these are phases that mm. they take time to enter into. And I think sort of where I bring us today in this final stop, um, waiting at the tomb, it's really meant to be a holding period. And in some ways, it's great that we get to introduce us today on Tuesday because our normal course, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, is Holy Saturday isn't even really a day. It's like a few hours Jesus goes from tomb to resurrection. Mm-hmm. But So we need a longer pause to really be instructed uh, as to what happens when you're waiting for something. And I will remind our listeners and us today is remember the people who will visit today who sat at the tomb, facing the tomb, at that stage of the game, they had no idea what, if anything, mm. was going to happen. Mm. And I think this is going to be a, a, a place for meditation for us, too, because in many ways, we don't know from where we sit today what exactly is going to happen. Sure, you know, we all say, okay, one day we'll open up again, and one day we'll do these things, but is it tomorrow? Is it six weeks from now? Is it what? And what is life going to be like on the other side of when things, for lack of a better word, open up again. So the women that we'll meet today, uh, particularly from Matthew and Mark, they're sitting there in this great void. And it's a, we'll see today it's a very uncomfortable place to be, but it is an incredibly instructive place to mm. be, as you said earlier, if we allow it. Mm. I know, Father, there, there's not a lot of attention in the Scripture, although obviously we're going to look at it uh, to some extent regarding the women. But even as I could say Hollywood tries to kind of display the idea of 
the death of Christ. You know, we can think of various movies, The Passion of the Christ comes to mind. But there's very little attention. It's kind of like we reach the apex, as we talked about. Jesus dies, and then there's this idea, well, they had to get him in the grave real quick, and it's as if the real quick thing kind of disappears in the text, so to speak. We have a little bit of knowledge about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but it's the whole idea that it's very hard for us to kind of enter into that time. We really, in our hurriedness, we want to get to that resurrection piece. You know, the worst has happened. We're believing that the best is going to come out of it. It's just that in between time, we're not necessarily interested in spending time there. Right. That, that'll that be sort of uh, <clears throat> part of the picture of what we're looking at today is in between times are difficult uh, as we find ourselves in now. Um, but you're right. Scripturally speaking, there is very little. Um, I mean, we'll see today. There's just a couple of lines about what happens after the burial. And, you know, even scripturally and sort of the language of faith is is also um, a, a little bit out of place because just think about it, you know, in the, earlier in the scriptures in a number of places, Jesus says, you know, the son of man must suffer, be put to death. And on the third day, he will rise again mm. as if he's in the tomb for three days. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, you know, you sort of have that mental picture of three days, but there are not three days that transpire between burial and resurrection. So, um, so the scriptures in some sense don't help us out a lot there, uh, because they move quickly. Uh, and our sort of natural take on dealing with death as human beings is we like to move quickly mm-hmm. uh, too and jump to uh, to resurrection and, and, and to sort of really grab a hold of that. And then, as we know, we have seven weeks of an Easter season to really plumb the depths of, of uh, resur- the meaning of resurrection and the different ways of understanding it, you know, what happened to Christ, what happened to his disciples, what happens to us, the meaning of resurrection. Uh, resurrection for us. But so, you know, today we have the opportunity in this final uh, stop, you know, waiting at the tomb. Um, and I've I sort of uh, entitled our program today, Waiting at the Tomb, The Long Loneliness. And mm-hmm. I'm actually borrowing that phrase from the title of the uh, autobiography that uh, Dorothy Day uh, wrote. She called it The Long Loneliness. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think that for me speaks to what this interim period is. And we like to quickly cross thresholds, go from where we were to where we want to be. But there is so much to be uh, to be gained from being in these in-between threshold times where what went before, that's not there anymore. And what is yet to be, it's not quite there yet. Uh, So this stop at the tomb uh, is really a time of waiting. It's a time of mourning. It's a time of watching and looking for uh, hints, possibilities of Mm. what does God have in store. Mm. And again, you and I know, we know more than the women did what was in store, what Mm -hmm. what is in store. But when you put yourself in your heart and mind and imagination in that place of, I'm not sure what's in store. What, What, as we were saying earlier, what does God really intend for any of us coming through this global uh, catastrophe? Um, we don't quite know that, but we're looking in a, you have to put your heart and your eyes and your, in your heart in a certain kind of way, otherwise you're going to miss anything that comes from it. Mm-hmm. So this, this, you know, meeting at the, at the tomb today, setting that scene is, it's, I think it's a really important place for us to be right now. 
Well, you're listening to Treasures of Faith, and I'm joined by Father Ben Berinti, and we're concluding our Lenten pilgrimage today. Father, could we almost say that our whole lives are, in a way, a kind of long waiting? Maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but as you were just alluding to the whole concept of these women, they had no idea Jesus was dead. You know, he was in the grave. I think what's amazing is they had to, the courage to go to that tomb. You know, we always talk about how the disciples walked away, Peter denied Jesus. And of course, I know men and women, they react very differently, generally speaking. Uh, but here we find these women, they knew Jesus differently than the men did. And I think that's what kind of drew them to the tomb. They took the opportunity really to uh, engage in what we refer to as the lawn loneliness. The men were choosing to just kind of um, uh, walk away from it and pretend maybe that that really didn't exist in their experience. Yeah, that's a that's really a great uh, insight and really the heart of it all here because the 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 first choice the women made. Um, and as we explore, you know, what are the implications for us in our own lives and on our spiritual journey is the women chose to go to the tomb. Uh, one of the translations of, of Scripture says they sat facing the tomb. Mm. So we'll get to this a little bit later on, but this is really the heart and soul of it is you don't have to face the tomb. Clearly, the rest of the disciples did not face the tomb. They ran away and hid, and we have all kinds of ways of not mm. facing the reality. Remember yesterday we talked about, you know, the cross is really about death, death to old self, death to the world, death to many different kinds of things. And we, we, we don't want to sit facing death. No. But, but these women had a, a, a certain kind of an intimacy with Jesus that even in their grief and their loss, they were going to still go and face the tomb because in many ways this was, so here you have a kind of a contrast. The women, in a sense, are choosing to keep the relationship with Jesus alive, even though mm. they're facing a dead Lord behind the big stone. The other disciples, in fleeing and running away and holding up somewhere, they have chosen, chosen in some ways to, well, that was a great relationship while yeah. it lasted, um, that was a great three years, but I guess I better get yeah, back to fishing. Yeah, it was a fishing. great three years, and exactly because, you know, with that, let's jump ahead. What, in fact, do several of the Gospels tell us that where does Jesus find some of these disciples? They are just simply back to doing what they knew how to do before. Mm -hmm. Uh, as if, well, let, let me just go back to what I knew because so here are the women in a different kind of level of intimacy mm -hmm. are are keeping the relationship with Jesus alive. Let's just take a quick look um, at Matthew uh, 27, uh, 57 to 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock, and then he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So you got literally one sentence uh, in Matthew about the women at the tomb, identified specifically as Mary Magdalene and the, the other Mary. 
And then in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, when evening had come and since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him whether he had been dead for some time. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and taking down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where the body was laid. Mm. So again, very simple uh, little reflections. It's interesting that uh, you know, Mark uses that specific expression about Joseph of Arimathea as he was also one waiting expectantly. So Mark is already introduced into this little scene, something of expectation. Mm-hmm. What are what are people expecting? And and you know, isn't that really the question that maybe is the core of our experiences of being in between, being where we sit right now? If we choose to go ahead and face death, the big question is always, what's next? Mm. You know, what's next? Mm. What are the expectations? What were the expectations of Peter, John, and all those who ran? What were the expectations of Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, Mary, the mother of Joseph? You know, what's what's next? That's that's the question we always ask when we're in the middle of a mm. of a unstable uh, period of time in our lives. Yeah, I think that for Joseph, I mean, here's a gentleman who was of means, and he he met the need, uh, and of course he was able to do so. It was his own tomb, and he was willing really to go the extra mile, but at the same time, as the scripture says, he rolls the stone and then he leaves. Right. You know, yeah. which which again, you know, and as a guy, yeah, okay, we just move on, I yeah. guess. I guess to deal with this, yeah. I'll have to deal with it later, but I'm not going to process it now. I'm going to head for my own cave, I guess you could say. <laughs> right. Yeah, there is, and that's a, it's a great uh, I mean a great sort of dimension or layer. Again, you know, we're looking at always with scripture stories as you well know, everything is compressed. Yeah. So a sentence about Joseph, a sentence about the women in front of the tomb, a sentence about the linen cloth. So you have to sort of pull that apart to, all right, what, what's being captured here? And yes, yeah, so here's Joseph doing this wonderful, beautiful thing, tending to the proper burial of the Lord, and then he goes away. And, you know, again, you can, I think, speculate on, on good grounds that, uh, you know, obviously the women were positioned there. So, you know, Joseph say, well, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm do your thing, <laughs> you know, I'm going to move on to other things or others, you know, kind of that sense of, all right, if you think this is going to do you some good, go ahead and sit, but it's over. Yep. Um, you know, we're moving on. So so we all ask that question, or I say maybe there's a, a kind of a little cluster of questions. You know, what do I do now? Uh, where do I go? Um, what's next? These are the questions of... of I, I'm wondering if these women, though, Father, if even though Jesus told the disciples, there's at least three times that I can recall where he told them he was going to die. But he also talked about rising again. They had the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in all of his glory. 
And yet, if you think about it, perhaps the women actually took his words to heart. So while they were there, they had some sense that maybe what Jesus had said would actually come to pass. Maybe they were exhibiting greater faith. Right. I mean, they, they are there. It's fair to say they're there in faith and, and apparently possessed a kind of faith that at some level the uh, apostles and other disciples did not. Um, and so they come in faith. And even though, again, the Gospels allude to Jesus making proclamations, uh, you know, about uh, rising, the Son of Man must rise from the dead, uh, Peter, James, and John, who, you know, witnessed the transfiguration. Uh, John, of course, is the only gospel that gives us the great story of Lazarus, the great mm-hmm. narrative of Lazarus. And you'd, you know, and that's always been the funny thing about the Lazarus narrative is that's pretty amazing. Uh, why doesn't any other gospel mm-hmm. writer talk about a Lazarus? Know. Yeah. You know, so again, it's one of the conundrums of, mm-hmm. of the gospel, the evangelist, but it makes sense when you understand what John is, is doing. So again, there's all these things there, but at some level, uh, and I think this is true on our own journey of faith, some people take it and are willing to run a little bit further than others. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to cling to faith. I'm going to cling to the promises of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And others we we give up a little too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um or we give up, you know, completely. So, and again, that's not to condemn somebody who gives up too quickly and turn mm-hmm. a saint out of someone who who, sure. you know, gives unbridled uh uh, you know, attention to to something in, in faith or whatever. It's not to make a judgment about people in that kind of way, but it's just simply to say this is this is part of our own, you know, our own experience. So at some deep level, uh, Mary Magdalene and whoever else was there, and then, of course, we the story picks up with some women going back to the tomb, you know, to uh, further conduct burial uh, services, which again is an interesting thing because in, again, the time of Jesus that they would not have been doing this, that there wasn't their place to do this kind of a, kind of a thing. So, so there is that level of, they are trying against all odds, against any reasonable sense to still cling to Jesus and have some hope as we often find, uh, spoken in the Psalms, there is some hope that God will act again. Why? Fundamentally, because God has acted before now. And that, that's, the, that's the heart and the soul of it. Mm-hmm. So we do see mm-hmm. in them this, this uh, they're in this in-between time, this threshold time. They're between what just transpired, horrible things that just transpired, unknown about what the future is, but hoping for a, a, a better uh, future, but they're okay with lingering, if you will, sitting in and facing it. And I think that the translation of the scripture that talks about uh, the one I read today from the New Revised Standard Version said they sat opposite the tomb, but you imagine it's a different way of saying they were facing the yes. tomb. I think there's just so yep. much in that phrase, mm. facing the tomb, mm. facing death, facing this this in-between time, between cross and resurrection um, I think to to know more the depth of resurrection, you, we have to spend in this this lingering time, and that's what we like to run away from. I would love to have a transcript or a recording of what the women said to one another as they sat facing that tomb. You know, and obviously the Spirit uh, hasn't preserved that for us, but 
we can maybe speculate a little bit. I think the difficult thing for us, Father, is just the waiting. You know, um, I can recall when I first moved to Florida, and here we are in the South, and I had lived in western New York in the Northeast, and I remember the first time I went to a McDonald's in Florida, and I had to wait what I thought was an extraordinary amount of time, and I was just having to deal with a little different culture. And so for many of us, when it comes to waiting just in everyday life, it's also waiting from the perspective of what is God saying to me in this moment? What does God want me to learn from this situation in my life? And I think what we're seeing is some evidence of that, and we're being challenged by it, as we sit facing the tomb. Yeah, you know, we thought we were probably done with the whole spirituality of waiting when Advent came to a close. But yeah, here, yeah, here, we, know, are here again. we are again. Here we are again with this, uh, you know, this waiting business. And I'll, I'll one-up you on the challenge of waiting, and that is anybody who has ever dined in Italy in a restaurant <laughs> and you tried to get the check to pay without dining and dashing, um, you don't know the meaning of, of waiting. I have chased down many a server after 25 minutes, and I'm thinking, like, if you don't want to get paid, that's okay with me, you know. So I learned the trick of that is you take cash with you, and that way you can leave the cash and get up and go. You'd think they want to turn that table over, right? But I guess they get paid by the hour. Anyway, we have to wait for a few moments uh, to conclude our pilgrimage. You're listening to Treasures of Faith on Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach. Well, welcome back to Treasures of Faith. I'm joined by Father Ben Berinti, and we are concluding our Lenten pilgrimage today. Last time we were at the foot of the cross, and today we are facing the tomb. And Father, I've never really taken the time, although I've read the Scripture a number of times, as I mentioned earlier, I tend to kind of skip over the time that uh, languished between the actual death of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection. It's kind of like, and you talked about this, Holy Saturday. I even remember as a child, I remember that when I was a young child, I was maybe maybe 9, 10 years old, and, and, and I really had a real desire to know God, even at a young age. And I remember going to the church on Holy Saturday, and I could walk to the parish. It was only a block and a half away from my house. I remember sitting in there and how blank everything was. And there was something about that uh, that uh, I recall even to this day. So these women, we left them facing the tomb, They're obviously perhaps just meditating. I'm quite sure they're carrying on a conversation. Um, How are we to kind of unpack all of that for where we are, given our present circumstances? Well, you know, I think let's just go back to the real, just the experience of Holy Saturday to begin with. So for many people, you know, in a a sort of a normal time uh, and season, uh, you know, our our sort of lifestyle and the things that go on inside and outside of the church sort of militate against really doing anything with Holy Saturday. So if you're in a parish and parish ministry, you know, you're making literally the transition from Good Friday to the Easter vigil. So there's all kind of preparation that's going on and Mm -hmm. choir rehearsals are starting at, you know, five o'clock and all the floral business and uh, blessing of baskets and, uh, you know, so 
so literally, even on the inside of church life, people were ministering the church, clergy as well, you're getting ready for the big thing. And of course, many parishes would have had extra masses for Easter. And uh, so in one sense, there's not a whole lot of practical time to meditate on that. So you're just because inside the church, you're doing all the chores that need to be done. Outside the church, people are also kind of getting ready for Easter. You know, the food, the meals, maybe the travel. Um, And so it's kind of like that wedge of time is just loaded with activity. So here we find ourselves in a very different situation, both liturgically um, as well as in our in our own uh, you know daily lives. And so we have a we have a real opportunity to look more at this uh, you know this in between time. And like you, I also uh, for for many many years, sort of after the Good Friday. Uh, services were over and before we'd get to Saturday and then start all the busy work of, uh, you know, the excitement of of baptizing uh, the elect and all the things that go on that day, as I used to like to come back after everybody was gone and really just sit in what is usually the emptiest of empty Mm -hmm. uh, of the church because, you know, you've stripped away any kind of florals for Good Mm -hmm. Friday, uh, crosses and statues might still be covered. Um, everything is really at its bare bones. The tabernacle door, the tabernacle is, door open. is open. The tabernacle light is gone. And so you really, uh, it, it's really, I agree with you, is a, can be a very powerful uh, physical experience mm-hmm. uh, being in that. Well, here now, you know, the faithful, we're in this magnified period of in-between and, and not even a, experience a lot of emptiness. And I think that's really, as you say, the women, whatever they were doing, praying together. Uh, you know, I would like to also say, besides be great to have a, you know, what, what was their conversation about? But I would say this, I think also the women were smart enough to know that in these kind of situations, you don't say a lot. Mm. You just, you know, that's also a tendency of people when you're in the waiting period, it's yeah. a way of escaping is you just, you just mm. rattle on, mm. uh, you just fill up the void because you don't like the void. And so part of me is also saying there was probably prayer going on there, there was probably some conversation, but I think the women were also smart enough to know that in the face of this this emptiness, we just sit with it. We don't have to say anything. Just let it let us soak up. Let us, in a sense, be alone with our own thoughts about our relationship with the Lord, uh, you know, relationship with each other. And again, why I think this this Holy Saturday experience and meditation is so important is in reality, as we know, perhaps greater now than ever, our lives are filled with Holy Saturdays. Yeah. And I don't mean the Holy Saturday of frenetic activity to get ready for Easter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holy Saturday experiences of space in between, because in a sense, Holy Saturday is not the day for answers. It's a day for, it's a threshold day. It's a day that resists easy certainty. It resists the kind of things that sometimes, even though we mean well, that we say when people are faced with death. Oh, he's a much better place. Oh, it was God's will. Mm. Uh, You know, all this kind of fill in the gaps that really doesn't help anybody. No. Um, So Holy Saturday is doesn't it resists that kind of easy Mm. certainty. It is a day of waiting. And also it's a day to remember to breathe. Mm. You know, it's a day to just exhale all of whatever it is we've we've been experiencing. And when we can do that, in a sense, the resurrection the pro- is already beginning. I'd like to say that it seems like nothing is going on, but something is still going on. Mm. And those women, 
being placed there and whatever is transpiring, however they're clinging to try to stay connected to their Lord and Savior, it's not that nothing is happening. It's in the darkness of that tomb. And remember, one of the great images that we often use and have for centuries, millennia in the church, but we kind of maybe shy away from is the tomb is really a womb. In the darkness of mm-hmm. this womb. In fact, that's our baptismal fonts. Our baptismal sure fonts are the the womb, literally, that people are plunged into, and out of that water comes, you know, out of the surf uh, comes this this new life. And so, I think that's the reminder. And this is this is something again. I'll honestly say I'm struggling with now in my own spiritual life, but trying to hold on to is that in the darkness, in what appears to be emptiness, God is doing something. Mm even though I cannot see it. Mm. God was already preparing for Easter morning, and the women sort of serve as the testimony that something is going on in the shadows. Mm. The other people, are they're gone. They're testifying to nothing. But the women, by just their mere presence there, no matter what they were saying or doing, um, are testifying that God is still doing something in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the shadow, that there is something going on below the surface, if you will, behind that large stone. And they are a testimony to the faith that we have to believe that God is doing something when we cannot see it. I I think this is a real challenge for us to think about how the women were willing to be present at the tomb and yet having absolutely no control over the situation. And, you know, I mean, Father, I think about in our modern culture, we're not even comfortable with silence. You know, we have a very difficult time. I mean, even small church communities, when people get together, and even for a time of prayer, oftentimes if you pose a question or ask people to meditate on something, people struggle. They're okay for about 20 seconds. And then from there, everybody's kind of like, who's going to say something? You know, we're so uncomfortable with silence because we always have to be in some sense in control of the situation. What amazes me about these women is they have absolutely no control, yet they are present. And yet, as you just mentioned, something absolutely incredible is already in the process of taking place. Jesus is in the process of conquering death itself. Exactly. And I mean, I think that's a a really beautiful way, a beautiful way to phrase the heart and soul of this whole experience is they choose to still be present. Mm. They choose to be Mm. present even though they're not sure what's going to happen, even though it seems to be, uh, in our terminology, useless. It's unproductive, um, boring. Um, no guarantee of, uh, you know, future. In other words, at least a future, the future of what is going to, God is going to do is out of sight, literally, mm-hmm. uh, right now. Um, this is not attractive. It's not inviting. Um, it's loneliness. Uh, emptiness is unwelcome. And yet they do really the most honest thing you can do, and that is to remain present to the moment. This is not a, by any means a pleasant moment at all, but they choose to stay. I guess what I'd, the terminology we'd use is they choose to stay in the moment. Yeah. They're not because our normal, mm-hmm. you know, and our normal sort of things is so here. The women are sort of in a two stage process as we are too. First, there is the letting go. 
But then they're following up the letting go with letting it be. Mm. Let's just let, it's an awkward in between. Always following letting go, the more healthy thing is to let things be for a while. Now our natural tendency is to do something right away. Mm. You know, what can I do? So I let go of this and so I quickly fill back up the time or whatever it is. But the women are in this, they're okay with being in this holding pattern of of letting it be because normally when most of us are in the let it be or faced with letting it be, we have all kind of escape routes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we sometimes just want to run back to the way things were before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of what I like to call the back to Egypt syndrome, you know. It's the Israelites are in the waiting, the Mm -hmm. long loneliness of the desert experience. And all of a sudden they come up with this ridiculous idea that, oh, I think we were better off back in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. So, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know yet what's coming in my, my current situation. I'm trying to be present to what's happening, but it's very uncomfortable. So let me just go back to what had once been and try to somehow recreate it, even if it's a, a fantasy. Sometimes what we do, uh, one of our sort of escape routes is we just start, like I like to call it, fussing around. You start fussing around with, mm. you know, with stuff, frenetic mm. activity, mm-hmm. um, fussing with things, mm. uh, distractions. In other words, it's sort of don't just sit there, do something. That's kind of our normal uh, motto. But there's also we want to trade that motto for don't just do something, sit there. Mm. That's a hard trade because mm. our every bone in our body is, you know, don't just sit there, do something. Who, why isn't somebody doing something about this? And yet in this Holy Saturday experience, I thought the women, women are teaching us, don't just do something for the sake of doing it, mm-hmm. just sit there. And of course, I think one of the other escape routes we often have when we're in these difficult, awkward in-between periods is we like to blame Mm. Let's blame somebody Mm -hmm. for something. So these are kind of our normal, and I'm not just talking in the spiritual journey. This is our challenge of, of, of being in these liminal positions. So it takes great, I think you used the word earlier, great courage Mm. on the part of these women to let it be and to face the tomb. Mm. Yeah. As you were talking, Father, I was thinking about, it's funny that we don't read about Martha uh, being at the tomb, and we're all familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. And you know, I was envisioning Martha was back in the home of Lazarus and Mary, cleaning up the guest room where Jesus had been staying. You know that we got to move on from here, that kind of thing. And it may seem a little silly, but we're talking about these liminal experiences. We're talking about being in a place where we are completely out of control. And I'm thinking about how. In our lives, you know, you and I both know there are are people, men in particular, when they go to retire, you know, they've been working, they've been, they've had their ladder up against the wall of, you know, getting ahead and being successful. And then all of a sudden there's no ladder anymore. They're sitting in a chair and they're having to come to terms, not only with their present situation of retirement, no longer sensing they're contributing but also that they're alone with their own thoughts. That yep. can be challenging all in itself. It's a frightening prospect for many people. Yes. <laughs> whether, yeah. whether you're on the retirement end of things or any, you know, be in our culture, being alone with your, now there, there are other extremes. You know, there's the extreme of some people are challenged simply because that's their life. Yeah. They are 
always alone with their mm-hmm. thoughts and over pondering and over analyzing. So that's kind of one extreme. Mm-hmm. The other extreme is just to pretend that I have no inner life and there is nothing to contemplate. And mm-hmm. so, but, but most of life is being lived again in the, in between those sort of two extremes, but you're right. Uh, and, and, you know, I know from my own experience, this goes for clergy as well. You know, mm. I've seen many a priest who comes to retirement of sorts and who really can't, mm. um, well, I'm a priest mm. for life. And it's like, yes, that, I mean, that, you know, that doesn't That's change, not gonna change. That doesn't change about us, but how you live out that life and how you minister, um, is, is not meant to be simply doing everything you did before. And so there are some, you know, for some of my uh, fellow priests who they get to that stage of their life and they are completely lost. Mm. And so people, you know, look at me and say, well, you know, you're so active and you have so many different things that you're doing and engaging. What, what do you think will happen to you when you get to that point? And so I honestly say to them, well, one, I hope I get to that point. <laughs> That's uh, the first thing. And it's probably going to come sooner rather than later. Uh, I'm not going to be a senior associate at 90 years old. That's not my, not my intention. And then the other thing is, my gosh, I have so many things I am interested in life and mm. things to pursue and relationships to focus on and and mm-hmm. I will gladly welcome the day. I am mm-hmm. not, you know, my life is, is uh, not going to be over because I'm, you know, no longer in charge of something. In fact, a couple of places along the way in my priestly ministry here in Orlando, I had a couple of occasions where I was not in charge. And my gosh, did I cherish those years when I was not in charge. So I'm going to be on the, I won't have any trouble with that, that sort of liminal period. But again, it's, it's a Holy Saturday. Uh, let me just share a little uh, poem with uh, you and our listeners by Elizabeth Rooney that mm. kind of captures the flavor of Holy Saturday. And she wrote this in a poem entitled Easter Saturday, which also kind of alludes that something is still going on. It reads like this, a curiously empty day as if the world's life has gone underground. The April sun warming dry grass makes pale spring promises, but nothing comes to pass. Anger relaxes into despair as we remember our helplessness. Remember him hanging there. We have purchased the spices, but they must wait for tomorrow. We shall keep today for emptiness and sorrow. Mm. So there's that sense of hopefulness, but it's like, this is what you do today Mm. because to sit and face emptiness, to face sorrow, to tell the stories of, of our memories and our fears and what pains and anxieties we have right now, that helps us in the process of eventually practicing, uh, as Wendell Berry said in a great poem, practicing resurrection. Mm. So Holy Saturday um, is a curiously empty day. Uh, and her words are what is more appropriate for our struggles right now is if the world's life has gone underground. Mm. So much of what we normally consider mm. part of the way our life works has gone underground. Um, and nothing is coming to pass quite yet like we would hope for, desire for. And yet it is an Easter Saturday, meaning that God is doing something already. Resurrection is already being, in other words, you know, the cross, Jesus, especially for John, the whole ball of wax happened at Calvary. And so I don't want to call resurrection for John an addendum, but Jesus's work was completed. And now the work of the Father. So the resurrection, if you want to think of it, is already roll, was already rolling into Calvary. Mm-hmm. It's already blossoming in the tomb. We don't mm-hmm. see the full effects of it 
until you know the stone is driven away and the Lord is is raised. But resurrection, the seeds of resurrection, I guess you would say, are are here, and and that I think is what we have to cling to. Not only what the women were clinging to, but what they show us. We need to be clinging to now in our own uh, long loneliness is is res- the seeds of resurrection have been planted and they are not only planted they're already sprouting even if you and i can't quite see mm. that yet i remember reading a quote father from uh, saint john Vianney. someone asked him with all of the hours that he spent in the confessional what was it that he had kind of concluded from human nature and he basically said people are sadder than they seem to be And I thought about that from the perspective of those women who were sitting facing the tomb, but I think the beauty of it is they didn't sit there alone. And we talk about loneliness. I know that you as a priest and I being a minister in the past, one of the things that I noted is how many people are lonely in our modern society and how they deal with loneliness. I thought about loneliness as kind of like a malnutrition of the soul. You know, it's been living on substitutes for so long, and yet here we see these women, they are together, but they're facing something, and they really don't know what to anticipate. And, and again, this is uh, the wisdom displayed here, the courage displayed here, and a key to what, what is, especially scripturally, but we see especially here in these women, what, what can you do when you are in a period of of loss and despair and fear and and facing whatever the tomb might be is one of the things the scripture tells us is be there with somebody else mm-hmm. so the fact that the it's not just Mary and Magdala it's not only Mary the mother of Joseph it's always at least as we've heard in these two passages two of them together and there will be others that are together in other words they have the wisdom to when you're in these situations it's always better to do it together mm. with someone else. And, and the Bible teaches us about uh, how to be in these threshold experiences in three great symbols. And they're, you know, we, can, we don't have time to plumb them in the few moments we have left now. But there are three eloquent, I guess, biblical visions or symbols of what do you do in the in-between. The one is the desert experience. So we can learn a lot about what does one do when you are in between by looking to the Exodus desert experience and the desert experience of many spiritual writers. The second great symbol is Sabbath. That's what mm-hmm. Sabbath is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Sabbath is in the is the in-between day. Mm-hmm. And what's one of the great things that people are called to do on Sabbath is join together in yeah. worship for Sabbath. Now, we have some limitations on that, practically speaking, right now. And then we have another great uh, biblical Uh, image that is really coming to roost here with these women is keeping vigil Mm. and they keep vigil together they they it's easier to see to support one another in this kind of loss period when you're doing it at least with someone else however that is possible and i think that's our that's one of our great lessons right now and i think we're struggling we're we're trying to find different ways to still be together and as much as i get irritated i think on tv when i see uh you know movie stars coming on there again from their 
basement telling me we're in this together and i'm yeah. thinking like you don't even know me so why, <laughs> and why do i need to hear from ll cool j that we're in this right. together you know and i love you and you i know? love you, I you love, know, the, love, love you love all you. it's yeah. like yeah it's easy to love me when you're making millions off of me so maybe a little cynical but the point of it is though um we need the women teach us the best way to move through these periods of time of liminality of uh of losses doing it together and that's what we're still trying to do and of course our you know wonderful radio station here is just one other way to keep us together and it's a great gift that god is giving our our uh, space and treasure coast i think that the lord in his wisdom he allows us these experiences to i think more genuinely appreciate being in community and, you know, I mean, I know my wife knows this. I could just as easily live in a monastery. I'd probably be fine. But even the desert mothers and fathers came out of the desert once in a while. You know, there's something about us. We are social beings. And so um, God has given us the gift of community, the gift of one another. And as we kind of face the tomb, so to speak, we know that we're really not alone if we're really willing to be open to the Spirit of God, sometimes speaking to us through our brothers and sisters. Absolutely. I mean, again, I'm, I'm the same way when I do my, uh, you know, personal uh, retreats each year. My, you know, my idea of the personal retreat is I go to a couple favorite places, a couple retreat houses I like to do, and I want to see no one. I want to talk to no one, um, you know. The entire time I'm there, that's bliss um, because I like that. But as you know, many people have pointed out, uh, you know, during the this global pandemic is, you know, all of the experts, they keep attesting to how, not only how difficult this distancing is because of lots of different reasons, but the smartest ones keep telling us human beings are wired for community. We're wired for relationship. This, as Catholics would say, this is what God puts inside of us. We're made for relationship with God first and foremost, and then by association for with others. So this is unnatural. Mm. This is unnatural mm. to us. Mm. Um, and so perhaps it can lead us to a heightened sense of the value and and importance of of, uh, of being in, in community. Um, there's another short little poem by a writer named John Harrell that I'd like to share as well that I think kind of summarizes where we'll be jumping off now. And he puts it this way. He said, This holy Saturday we wait and watch. What comes will surely be his surprise. He's working on it right now, and we must wait for it. There is nothing else to do. On holy Saturday we realize is at no other time we simply have to wait, and then it happens. So one of the priests in my religious congregation who's uh, written a number of great, really wonderful spiritual books once put it this way, is that our amen is what gives birth to the possibility of our alleluia. Mm. And so these waiting women, in a sense, are saying amen, so be it, mm -hmm. in this moment. And that is what gives birth to eventually being able to claim Alleluia. In other words, we must be able to say Amen before we can sing Alleluia. And I, the, I've been holding on to that in my own life and trying to see how I can make sense of that. There's so many things that you and I and our listeners and, and you know, the whole world is having to say Amen. Literally, let it be, so mm -hmm. be it. And if we can do that, 
clinging to the grace of God, then our Alleluia is going to be even more meaningful when we get to shout it. You know, in some ways, Father, this whole coronavirus epidemic, pandemic, I guess we could say, is really kind of forcing us to be intentional about saying amen and being comfortable with allowing our faith to be tested in such a way that we could actually utter those words. So be it. Uh, and so that challenge is before us. Um, Father Ben, uh, do you have that prayer also uh, that I know you've been sharing with us? Uh, as we come to sort of the end of our uh, pilgrimage today, I'm going to share uh, a little bit of a different blessing. It comes from a, a good friend of mine, uh, Reverend Jan Richardson, and it's uh, called, Therefore I Will Hope, a blessing. And let me allow that to be a blessing for us and for our listeners today. I have no cause to linger beside this place of death, no reason to keep vigil where life has left. And yet I cannot go, cannot bring myself to cleave myself from here, can only pray that this waiting might yet be a blessing, in this grieving yet a blessing, in this stone yet a blessing, and this silence yet a blessing still. I pray for all of us and especially for our listeners who are so generous in supporting us that this time of silence, this facing the tomb, can really be a time of blessing for us so that we, our amen to this moment of our life now can really lead to us to shout Alleluia with all the heart and soul we can muster. Amen. Amen. Father Ben, I want to thank you for joining us. Father Ben Barinti, he's the pastor of Immaculate Conception Paris in Melbourne Beach. He has been leading us on this beautiful Lenten pilgrimage. I know that our our listeners, I was going to say parishioners, your parishioners, I'm sure, and all of our listeners are just so very thankful for leading us uh, on this journey. I want to remind uh, our listeners that during this time of suspended masses, just so you know, mass is still going on. Please be reminded of that, but here, your local Catholic radio station, AM 920, we are here to supplement the online programs being provided by your parish. We broadcast the Mass from EWTN every day at 8 a.m., as well as Mass on Sunday. Of course, this Sunday is Easter Sunday, and I know that the Bishop in Orlando is asking all to tune in to the uh, diocesan website for the Tritium, and that will uh, begin at 6.30, I believe. Uh, the Chrism Mass uh, is tomorrow evening. And then, of course, all the way through the Easter Vigil. But your individual parishes will, I believe, have Mass on Sunday live stream. So thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach. Matter.